Number 685 has been asked that we mark that, and we're certainly happy to do that, and we use that a bit later in the service this morning. We are delighted that God has allowed each of us the opportunity and the privilege of gathering today, and it's our desire to worship the, our Father in heaven in truth and in spirit, John 4, verse 24. The songs in which we have together sung and the prayers in which we've engaged, the opportunity of opening the blessed Word of God, have all made it well worth our while already to be here. And hopefully over the next few moments we can yet study anew and look again at some of the features found in the blessed New Testament. We are thankful for the presence of each and every individual, our visitors, our membership alike. And may over the next few moments, if you have your Bible handy, that we will look at some features in a lesson entitled, The Fullness of the New Testament. And the very first word of that title will, without question, be the central feature of the lesson this morning, Jesus, our Savior. Isn't it interesting that as you and I reflect on the orchestration of humanity, from the very beginning even until today, the central feature, the center piece, the center hub of it all has been Jesus, the Messiah. The Old Testament looked forward to His coming. It proclaimed in no uncertain terms the greatness, the reality both of His life and of His kingdom. But in addition to that, we notice as we turn the page to the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament mentions Jesus Christ. He had come. He was in the process in terms of His birth. We notice as the New Testament rolls forward that He did come. He set forth by greatness the teaching, bringing into existence the church, giving to you and me the hope of eternal salvation. The very last verse in the New Testament mentions Him again. Not only did He come that one time, He is of course proclaimed as He is coming back, and do not the saints exultingly refrain, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. It is in light of all of that, that some of these comments certainly seem obvious. That Jesus as the centerpiece of the New Testament, means that the Bible lifts the Lord very highly. Scarcely is there a page that passes, but what He is not lifted up in such great respect, set before us as the object of our thinking, and not only that, the object of our life, our very conduct. Maybe Paul would begin our discussion today then in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, when he said, "...let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus." who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. And being found in likeness of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow." of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What a marvelous anthem calling us to appreciate that the name of Christ is that worthy. Every knee ought to bow. And certainly the day shall come when on that day of judgment those who have not certainly will then. And today as we reflect on then the fullness of the New Testament, this Jesus... You'll notice one of the statements I made on that slide. Scarcely a chapter, scarcely a verse, certainly not a page can be turned, but what we see Jesus as the centerpiece of the discussion, the high feature and high character, and so that will be the topic for today. 
I would invite you and I over the next few moments to just make a brief set of selections from each one of the 27 New Testament books. Our sole desire, our thoughts going to be to notice how the Lord is referenced, what great things He brought into being, what great benefits and blessings are yours and mine because of Him. Matthew chapter 2, verse 2 is where we'll begin. There even Herod, that pagan king, said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? Though Herod wouldn't have admitted it, here was one he recognized by the statements of others as the king of the Jews. And so he was, this great one that was to be the leader, the high point, their appreciation. We later notice in Matthew 16, 18, There from the lips of Peter himself, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. This very one was the Son of God, and He was the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Christ, that wherefore was to come at that time. We notice in Matthew 26, 28, on the very circumstances surrounding that which you and I recognize as the Lord's Supper, Jesus said as He made reference to the fruit of the vine, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This great one that we see in Matthew is King, He's Christ, He's Son of God, and His blood is the one that makes possible forgiveness of sins. No wonder the marvelous invitation of Matthew eleven twenty eight and following is set forth. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." On to Mark, though, we must go. Having made a brief appreciation of some of the descriptions of the Master in Matthew, what about Mark? In Mark 4.41, we immediately learn that though many others were so distraught about the sea, the Lord, however, merely by words was able to calm it. And they, in His audience, said, What kind of man is this that even the winds and the sea do obey Him? Our Lord was powerful, even over the realms of nature. In Mark 7, 37, He, speaking of Christ, hath done all things well. The Lord didn't fail at anything. He, in fact, was never able to do the, not able to do that which He desired. His will was a perfect one. We notice later in, Matthew, in Mark 10, 45, His servitude is highlighted. As great as all these other aspects were, He nonetheless humbled Himself to the greatness of His heavenly Father. And there He Himself admitted, The Son of Man is not come to minister unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. The marvelous matter and wonder of the servanthood of our Savior, wishing to go about doing good for others. And so it was in Mark 15, 34... We find there that harrowing scene when on the cross he was able to himself cry, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As powerful, majestic, mighty as he was, he nonetheless allowed nails to be driven into his hands and feet, and there, feeling the weight of the sins of all of the world, cried unto his very Father, quoting Psalm 22, 1. On to Luke we must go. Having so far seen the Lord presented in these very touching ways, in Luke 2.52, the perfect one had come. Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. There was no element, no chink in His life, unfulfilled in regard to what it ought to have been. 
Do we not in light of all of that? Appreciate that later in terms of Luke's presentation, we see in Luke 19.10, the very episode was Zacchaeus. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which was lost. That includes you and me, doesn't it? To seek and save those that are lost. Finally, in Luke 24, 44, even after His resurrection, in speaking to those apostles therein gathered in that location, it was to them He said, All that has been written in the Psalms, prophets, and writings concerning Me hath, hath been fulfilled. He was the fulfillment of the premier Old Testament prophets. No wonder today we should then appreciate very highly the nature of Christ. In fact, one of the things we'll see time and again, we've seen Him as Lord over creation so far. We have seen Him as absolute Master and Lord over the things surrounding life. The question personally that should be asked, what about your life and mine? Does He occupy a center position in your thinking, your words, your behavior? Or are you and I leaving Him behind? Let's look at John. The fourth book in the New Testament. We find in John 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was with, with God in the beginning, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Pausing at that point, we appreciate He was the Creator. In addition to all these other features, He, by His very Word, spoke and brought these things into existence. In Psalm 33, 9, the Old Testament statement there is made, The Lord spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. We notice that it was the Christ. It was Jesus the Son who was the agent through whom that creation was brought into its being. Later on in John, we notice chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He was the one through whom the love of God is expressed and manifested and seen. That love perhaps leads us to appreciate this next verse. John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Among the other things the Christ is, He is the Lamb of God. And as our mind rushes to the Old Testament, and we think about the offering of those lambs as God commanded, here was the principal lamb offered, the one to who, which all those others was pointing. This lamb brings us to John 14, 6, the way, the truth, and the life. John eleven twenty five, the resurrection and the life. John 6, 48, the bread of life. John 8, verse 12, the light of the world. Jesus is all of these things. Is it any wonder that He should occupy a center position, a center aspect and feature of your daily life and mine? To the book of Acts we go. We find in this book that Jesus, this one spoken of so far, is the ascended one. Acts 1 verses 9 through 11 paint a portrait for us on that occasion when from the Mount of Olives the Lord rose into the air in the very eyes of His apostles. And into the realms of eternal glory He went. But those two angelic visitors promised absolutely that He's coming back in exactly the same way you saw Him leave. He's the ascended one. And Daniel had foretold that when He passes through the clouds into the ancient of days, He will receive a kingdom and majesty and glory forever and ever. He now reigns in splendor over this kingdom of which you and I today are a part, this blessed church. 
Later we find in Acts 8 verse 12 that this very one was the one whose name was proclaimed and with so doing, baptism went with it. When they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Where Christ is preached, there will be scriptural baptism. It's that simple. And so it is in Acts 4 verse 12, Peter so exultingly refrained, neither is there salvation in any other. For there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Time and again, then, we notice those individuals in Acts proclaiming powerfully the message of Jesus, and there were thankfully blessed responses in obedient faith. As we come to the book of Romans, we notice Romans 1 verse 4 begins like this. He, speaking of Christ, is declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. The fact that the tomb was found empty, the fact that He was resurrected, proclaims forevermore that He is the Son of God. And as such, it brings us to Paul's reply in Romans 3, verses 23 to 25. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and that sounds so beleaguered and so sad. But the next verse says, Of the grace that you and I can receive through Him, May we thus pause to say that the agency by which the grace of God is appreciated is through the Christ. No Jesus, no grace. It is with that in mind we arrive at Romans 5, beginning in verse 6. We learn on this occasion about the magnitude and enormity of that love that God through Christ has shed forth for us. For when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. He thus is the one through whom justification is found, the one through whom the enjoyment and blessedness of real life is to be had. Multitudes today are languishing in the valley of disobedience. They have not obeyed the Master, or if they have, they have wandered off into the error of their way, and thus they do not appreciate the fullness of life as the Roman letter presents it. That life perhaps leads us to the next book of the New Testament. This book that we now appreciate as 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians, we learn very quickly in chapter 1 verse 24 that Jesus is both the wisdom and the power of God. He's both of them. Without the Christ, we do not know the great power of God. And without the Christ, we have not access to the marvelous wisdom of God. It is He who recognizes and sets before us both. That statement of 1 Corinthians 1.24 only challenges us to notice He's also our Passover in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. He there expressly, Paul did, said, Speaking of Christ, He is our Passover, taking us back to the scenes of Exodus 12 in which the angel, in fact, the death angel rolled through Egypt that night and only where there was blood on the doorpost, only where there was blood over the lintel, could it be said, When I see the blood... I will pass over you. Does He see the blood of Christ in your life and mine as we strive to live daily, 
always under the protective covering of His blood. Christ should be our everything. We notice later in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20, He is the first fruits of them that slept. Each of us are marching toward the reality of death. It may not always be the happiest of appreciations, but in our saner moments, when we appreciate the promise and reward to those that are faithful Christians, blessed are the dead which die in the Lord. And we know that just as surely as the Lord was resurrected, there will be a grand resurrection for one and all. The Lord told that to Martha, didn't He, in John 11, 26 and 7? The first fruits of them that slept. And so it is in 2 Corinthians. We learn something else about Jesus. In chapter 5, verse 10, He is the great judge. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in His body according to that He hath done, whether it be good or bad. All of us have an appointment on that day of judgment, an appointment that we cannot escape, we cannot evade it, and we certainly must not avoid it. It is a certain appointment. The Lord Jesus will be the one that shall render our judgment that day. What a sobering reflection. Not only is He portrayed as our judge, you'll notice in chapter 5, verse 21, same chapter, there it makes this description about Him and the blessing to us. For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He was made to bear your sins and mine. And you and I can enjoy as a result of that the marvelous righteousness through His name. You'll notice then in 2 Corinthians 10, 18, it's not he that commendeth himself that is blessed, but he whom the Lord commendeth. Question, what about your name at this point? Is the Lord commending you? Is He commending me? Is He able like Job to say, Have you considered my servant? And put your name in that sentence. It's an impressive thing to consider that it's whom the Lord commendeth that's really important. Is God able to commend you and me through Jesus at this moment? Or are we living far beneath our privileges to the point where Galatians 1.4, the next book in the New Testament, must come before us? It is He, speaking of Christ, who delivered us from this present evil world. He's your deliverer and mine. Without Him, we have no deliverance from the pollutions, from the contaminations, from the various corruptions of this world. And did not Peter say in 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 4, about the greatness of that deliverance? Jesus is our deliverer. In addition to that, Galatians 2, verse 10, or 2, verse 20, He also is the one for whom Paul could say, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, not I, but Christ liveth in me, for the life that I not live in the flesh. I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. With whom have you been crucified? With whom have I been crucified? Is it currently with the devil? Are you and I buddies with Him? Or have we indeed set aside the matters of life, crucified with Christ, striving day by day to live under His mastery and power? We see later in the Galatian letter, as you can see on that slide, chapter 6, verse 2, the reflection of the law. Jesus does have a law. He is the lawgiver. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 
as we come to the Ephesian letter, we learn immediately in chapter 1, verse 3, all spiritual blessings are in Him. He is thus the agency through whom our spiritual blessings come. Without Him, there aren't any. Without Him, we have nothing. Did He not tell those apostles in John 15, 5, without me, ye can do nothing? Jesus should be literally our everything. Sometimes we sing a song in our songbook. He is my everything. He is my all. May we always mean those words when we say them and when we sing them and when we think about the nature of their meaning. You'll notice another thing in Ephesians, not only this matter of our spiritual blessings. In Ephesians 2.14, Paul expressly said, He is our peace. P-E-A-C-E. Without the Master, without Jesus, there is no peace. There's only a frenetic life with nothing to look forward to. Death is certainly no enjoyment for those that die outside the Lord. Death is certainly no pleasant thing for those that aren't prepared to meet the very one who died for them. Yet He is our peace. In the context there, Paul described about the fact that that old law was nailed to the cross and taken away through Him. It is He who closed that chasm and was able to bring us back to God. It's amazing how many things Jesus does for you and me, isn't it? No wonder He's the centerpiece of the New Testament. Perhaps one final thought in Ephesians, Ephesians 3.19, The love of Christ which passeth all understanding. That love exemplified in the fact that He gave His life and day by day He sits at the right hand of God striving and wishing to minister on your behalf and mine if we will but let Him. Philippians, the book of joy. We notice how is it you and I can enjoy joy. Philippians 4.4 4 says rejoice in the Lord. There's the means by which we can rejoice. That characteristic of being able to rejoice only reminds us of this scene in Philippians 3.8. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in Him, not having mine own righteousness which is of the law, but the righteousness which is of God by faith. Paul said, I have willingly and happily forsaken it all, that I might be found in Him. He was everything for Paul. Is He everything for you and me? Is it any wonder then finally in chapter 4 of that same Philippian letter we notice, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Is He the source of the strength to whom you turn day by day? And the same for me. The Colossian letter sets Him forth as the centerpiece in these kinds of words. In Colossians 2, Verse 9, He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Colossians 2, verse 3, He is the centerpiece of all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In Colossians 3, 17, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks unto God and the Father by Him. He is the authority figure for us. Why is it we worship the way that we do? Why do we incorporate certain things, leave out to others because His authority says so? We rely on what He tells us. We know that the way of man is not in Himself, Jeremiah 10, 23. We dare not risk eternity based on our thinking. But we simply let it, thus saith the Lord, be our guide. And He said, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. He is our great lawgiver. 
He is the one that takes us to the book of 1 Thessalonians. In this 1 Thessalonian letter, we quickly appreciate that he was the one that was killed by the Jews. In such a terrible fashion, his life was taken. Though perfect, though innocent, though matchless he was, that life was taken. But yet we quickly see the blessing of 1 Thessalonians 4 where Paul takes the opportunity to encourage and comfort one another with these words. For the Lord Jesus shall descend with a shout, with a trump of God, with a voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Paul said, you don't need to have any reason to sorrow, not as those out there who have no hope. But don't you know, he says, the Lord Jesus indeed shall descend. And when he does, those that are prepared, the dead in Christ shall rise first. That should still fill our hearts also with the hope and the blessing and reward that Christ Jesus makes available. 2 Thessalonians continues this theme. Chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This same one who will come as a blessing on those who are prepared will come in flaming fire on those that don't know Him and haven't obeyed Him. Notice again, even in the Thessalonian letters, Jesus is still the center of peace. Every writer never ventures from Him. He is all that we ever have been or shall be. You'll notice later in 2 Thessalonians, chapter 2, verse 16, portrays Him as the very one who reigns over His kingdom and who in such blessedness is the one to whom Paul and we alike must turn. 1 Timothy is the book next to which we come. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, There's one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. He is our mediator. There is no man anywhere on earth to whom we go to as a mediator. He is our mediator that brings our petitions, our supplications, our desires unto God. The nature of Christ Jesus as our mediator points to the fact that He is also our great and blessed potentate, King of kings and Lord of lords, 1 Timothy 6.15. Aren't those marvelous words? He is King of kings and Lord of lords. It's not that He someday will be. There are multitudes who think that there's some coming kingdom and the Christ Jesus isn't yet reigning. They're mistaken by 2,000 years. The Lord Jesus today is reigning. And He reigns over His spiritual body, the kingdom, the church, you and me. You'll notice in 1 Timothy perhaps one other thought is that chapter 1 verse 12 in which we see there that He is the one who brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That sister book of 2 Timothy, we notice in chapter 2, verse 1, all grace is found in Jesus. The grace of God found in Christ. We noted that earlier, that apart from the coming of Christ and apart from His blessing, there is no appreciation of God's grace. Is it any wonder then in 2 Timothy... 4 verse 7 and 3 verse 15, or 4 verse 17, we find Jesus again lifted so beautifully and so highly. Specifically that passage in chapter 3 verse 15, from a babe you've known the Holy Scriptures. That was spoken to Timothy 
And the very nature of then the realization through Jesus is something he could appreciate and continue his lifelong element to preach. Amazingly, Paul could say, the Lord stood by me. Who is your most clear help in your daily walk of life? Paul said, the Lord stood by me. Who's standing beside you and me today? Do we only turn to Him when times are bad enough and crises come? Or are we joyously happy for Him to be there moment by moment, every moment of every day? On to the book of Titus we come. And Brother Eddie read from that book for us earlier. We notice in Titus 2, beginning in verse 11, specifically highlighting verse 13, it does interestingly say, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of that great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the great God and indeed our Savior. You'll notice in light of that passage in Titus, even in Philemon, a one-chapter New Testament book, still Jesus is the idea set before us. Specifically, notice these thoughts. He's the one through whom we serve, verses 20 and 16 alike. He's the one that opportunity gives us to appreciate the reason for our existence and what our life is able to be. You'll notice that book of Philemon leads us then to Hebrews. In Hebrews 3.1, He is our great high priest. He is the one that's our great profession and great confession. He is the one that serves after the priesthood of Melchizedek, chapter 5, verse 6. He's the one in chapter 7, verses 25 and 26, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's Christ. He's the one in chapter 10 who made one sacrifice for sins forever. It's almost as though words fail us completely to think about all the joy and benefit of Jesus. These closing books of the New Testament, though, bring us to appreciate not only Hebrews, but of course the book that follows it, the book of James. In chapter 2, verse 1, He's the Lord of glory and the one who guides even the very nature of our tongue and our language. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 3. With Jesus described in those kind of ways, is it any wonder in chapter 5, verse 4, He's called the Lord of Sabaoth? And you might take note, that does not mean Lord of Sabbath, at least in that context. That word Sabaoth means Lord of the armies of the hosts of heaven. And He is the one that reigns supreme as heaven's chief sacrifice and as, chief, as heaven's prized possession. After the book of James, we come to 1 Peter. We notice He's the one to whom all the Old Testament prophets looked. He fulfilled their work and explained its meaning though they never lived to see it, they desired to. How blessed are you and I to live in the reality Jesus has come. We can appreciate the meaning of all those prophecies. He is the chief shepherd and bishop. Chapter 5, verse 4 of 1 Peter. In 2 Peter, is He not the one described in these ways? The one through whom you and I must not and should not be barren or unfruitful. But rather in Him we know that we can bear the Christian fruits, live the Christian life, and look forward to all the benefit. Chapter 1 of 2 Peter verses 19 and 11. Perhaps finally in 2 Peter you'll notice, He's the one through whom we escape the pollutions of this world. We all know this world offers its contamination, its pollution, 
There's only one way that we can escape it, only one way to be cleansed from it, only one way to avoid it. Peter said it's explicitly through Jesus Christ. After 2 Peter, we come to 1 John. What about Christ here? He is called the explicit propitiation for your sins and mine, chapter 4, verse 10. He's the one whose blood is able to cover the sins of the whole world, 1 John 2, verse 2. He's the one through whom faith can be described like this. The faith that overcometh the world, 1 John 5, verse 4. Greater is He than in us, than is He that is in the world, 1 John 4, 4. Maybe that text in 1 John 3, 8 says it best. Why did the Lord Jesus come? He came to destroy the power of the devil, to overwhelm His work. In 2 John, another one-chapter book, we also find that He's the one whose doctrine can be transgressed and the one then whose fellowship with whom can be broken. If you and I choose to live apart from His doctrine, we are thus not His child and we do not have Him, 2 John 9. You'll appreciate not only that, but in the book of 3 John, He's the one through whom you and I are challenged and charged to go forth in the thoroughness of His name. His name. Do you and I wear the name with pride? Do we wear it thankful for all that He's done for us? And is it those marching orders that send us into the world to accomplish His work? You'll notice there were those in that book who were highly commended for that very reason, like Gaius, like Demetrius. But there was that Diotrephes, who of course loved to have the preeminence, John said, I'll deal with him when I come. Second John verses 11 and 12. Finally, you'll notice the book of Jude. Jesus is the one who provides us with mercy, verses 19 to 25. He's the one, in fact, who is just the opposite of the ungodliness of verse 14. He is the one spoken of in verse 3 like this. Beloved, when I give all diligence... He said, contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. And with that, the curtain closes in the book of Revelation. One more time, Jesus is the hub of the description. Look at just a brief mention. Revelation 1.11, Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 22.13, I am the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Revelation 5, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and glory and honor and strength and blessing. That's the Christ. You'll notice as that book does reach near its conclusion, in Revelation 19, you can't really see the verse that goes with that one, but Revelation 19, 10, we learn on that occasion that the spirit of the prophets is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of the New Testament. Every verse shouts loudly about His nature, the blessing that's ours because of Him. And let's finish the lesson then like this. If He is the center of the New Testament, the question must be asked by me and you, is He the center of my life and yours? If not, the whole New Testament shouts, you are making a terribly bad decision. You are forfeiting the only hope of eternal life. May we not be that unwise, but rather may we rush to His side in faithfulness and remain there through life. Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9 still say, and we'll use this to close our lesson.
though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Are you obeying him today? If you have never rendered initial obedience to him, why not this day, the 17th of March, the year 2013? There could never be a better day than this one. If you have not done that, then why not simply do this? Believe Jesus with all your heart to be the Son of God. Repent of your sins, confess His matchless name as the New Testament commands, and be baptized for remission of sins. If you have named His sweet name, but over the course of days and months and years, you have slid from your steadfastness. Rush back to His side at once. Don't risk another moment. We're going to stand in a moment and sing this hymn of encouragement. And if we could be of assistance in praying for your rededication, forgiveness of sins known publicly, let us do that. Jesus is awaiting right now for you to come. Won't you do it? While together we stand and while we sing.